welcome to Sacred Justice, a podcast that features discourse rooted in the pursuit of justice as sacred practice. Our weekly discussions reflect on current events, art, media, theology, and how they intersect with the movements for freedom and liberation. We hope that through these conversations, we can foster inclusivity by expanding our learning opportunities. We hope to cultivate digital community beyond the confines of our campus. And we hope to reconnect the church's social and spiritual callings. Join us for the journey. Welcome back to Sacred Justice. We are on episode seven today. I am Mia McLean and I'm here with... Ben Boswell. DJ. No, no. no DJ Hairless is retired. <laughs> yes, yes, the Benjamin Boswell. We are here and we are here for another episode. Ben, how are you today? It's hot. It's hot. It's a hot one. It's hot. A lot of things making me hot, not just the weather, but it's a hot one. It's a hot one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I forgot. I don't remember last summer being this hot, but maybe because we were all inside. So I don't, I don't remember this, but. <laughs> it wasn't this hot this early last year. This is hot for you. This is hot for May. We're yeah. in May, right? Well, you might be listening to this podcast and it's June and you're saying you thought it was hot in May. Now, now look where we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. So um, anyway, welcome back. I am, I'm well today. It's hot and been sort of running around town. So I'm feeling uh, as we begin to move into a routine that's more familiar of yesteryear, pre-COVID, there's all of this um, activity that at least I wasn't used to. And yeah. so I'm feeling uh, a certain kind of fatigue that mm -hmm. uh, I'm just trying to be careful with. I don't want to go back to pre-COVID busyness and overbooking calendars and things like that. I'm not, I'm not trying to go back to that. I mean, managing managing a hybrid work calendar plus, because like the stuff that was on Zoom isn't done yet. They still want to be on Zoom, you know, all over the world and places and then even here locally. And then you got to do the in-person stuff. So my dog's confused. And when my dog's confused, I know my life is messed up. My dog's like, where are you today? Are yeah. you here or are you going somewhere? Like, and I'm all over the place. Yeah. You know? Oh, I'll tell you what helped me though today, and you'll appreciate this. I went to a restaurant for lunch in Huntersville called The Lost Cajun. Mm. And it's all New Orleans themed. And it's got some character. Um, and they, I'll tell you what, some of their some of their jambalaya and was on point. Some of it was on point. So I'll have to be the judge of that. I now, don't know. I will say the po' boy was a little dry. Um, and I could have done a little bit better on the po' boy. Um, I had an oyster po' boy. But I'll, the soups were, yeah. I thought the, okay. soups were right. the soups were right. Like by soup, you mean like gumbo? What do you mean? Like they had gumbo. They had, um, they had a couple of other different kinds of soups. A couple of seafood soups. They had, a regular, they had regular gumbo and then a seafood gumbo. And then they had couple of other different kinds that were spicier. I got like, the spiciest one. It wasn't spicy, so it needed more hot sauce. They sell their own hot sauce and stuff there too, which is kind of cool. Mm. Um, but yeah, you know, I know with that New Orleans, you know, you got to go check these places out. Yeah, me. I got. I have to verify that they are worthy of It's worth, it, worth going up there just for the theming. It will make you feel at home. 
Okay. All right. I'll go up there soon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so today we have a lot on the docket, but there is so much happening in the world. And in, in this podcast, we like to make sure we're always connecting the dots. So what's happening in current events is not just a news story sometimes, but it does connect to our faith journeys and our spirituality and our, our work toward justice always. So Ben, what is on your docket for current events that's a must talk about today? Must talk about today. Um, you know, um, first thing on my docket must talk about today is I would just say I'm impressed with the work that I'm seeing from uh, the Attorney General of New York right now, uh, Letitia James, who has exposed the corruption of the NRA and looks like the NRA is going to have to um, either move to Texas and even when it moves, it's not going to be the same organization it once was. And all of this is because she investigated uh, Wayne LaPierre, the head of the NRA, who had been basically using the organization as his own slush fund, in addition to his $1.8 million salary, which, by the way, the NRA is a nonprofit organization. No, thank you. Um, but because they're organized as a nonprofit in New York, New York State, they are under general james's uh jurisdiction and so she has um and then they tried to they tried to he lapierre without telling anybody on his board or his general counsel declared bankruptcy as a way to save his own tail and then but it backfired because then a, a judge said you can't use bankruptcy like that y'all have 500 million in the bank that's not bankruptcy oh so um so it was just to cover his own personal um you know Act, actions which were um, illegal, so much things that he did illegal. So she's she's not only trying to get him removed, she's also trying to get all the money that they took paid back, right? So millions of dollars that they uh, that was uh, fraudulent, and then to have the organization completely dissolved. Mm. I'm telling you what, she came at it, and I got to say, in the in things that are for the cause of justice in the world, uh, she's not to mention all of her investigation into the Trump organization. So anyway, go, go Letitia James. Yes. I voted for her back in the day. I'm proud supporter still. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the thing about it, it was interesting. The other day somebody said to me, um, and it was at a dinner and they said churches should not have tax exempt status. And of course there's lots of debate about that. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I thought about that today, that comment, when I found out, as I sort of thought about the fact that the NRA, which is clearly a political organization, uh, has had tax exempt status for its entire history. That means this has not paid any taxes uh, on all that money that they've made. Anyway, a very interesting time. What's on what's on your mind? Yeah. Well, of course, there's all this conversation about Nicole Hannah Jones being denied tenure at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Right, right here, here in the great state of North Carolina. <laughs> I mean, I won't. I. I you know, I won't say how I really feel about UNC Chapel Hill because I, I went to a school up the street and you know, <laughs> how, you know how rivalries are on Tobacco Road. But in this particular case, it was a real shame. I was when I saw the announcement that she had been hired, I thought, wow, that was a big deal because that required some considerable recruitment and was a huge move for the School of Journalism there. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought that was a big that was a big deal. But then for this tenure, uh, which has never happened before, never, ever has anyone, let alone someone with her remarkable 
achievements and qualifications and honors and awards been denied tenure. So it be, it's purely political. And of course, it's purely political in relationship to this growing um, right wing attack on critical race theory yeah. uh, and what that meant for her 1619 project and her tenure. So again, a real, a real life example of how white denial of the history of racism in America and particularly scholarly work on racism in America um, has led to the hurt, something that actually hurts someone in real time, not just hurt people, oppressed people throughout the history of America, but is continuing to deny people tenure and access and um, create all kinds of mess right now. Yeah. So. One of the things that I've been reading about on Twitter, where I, you know, get all of my commentary, <laughs> my commentary. Um, so there are those who are saying that the focus is too much on tenure and not on the larger issue, which is about inequity and hiring practices across many fields. So there's a lot of people that started coming after UNC, coming after academia in general, because traditionally, Black women, women of color, have had struggles getting tenure positions in these types of institutions. Mm. So there's one thing that people are saying, this is not just an academia thing. Don't, don't, don't throw academia under the bus as right. if this is not, this isn't happening in, you know, like uh, right. the, Ernst & Young or Bank of America or whatever, like whatever get, other. Get your own house in order, right? Get your own right. house in order, yeah. And, and my, thing, like, my thing was, it's happening in church. It happens in church mm -hmm. all the time. Um, with people oh, yeah. in general. I was on a call the other day and someone prayed that the church would pay their clergy a living wage. That was their prayer. And it was a clergy person mm. praying on a call, like a Zoom call with a bunch of people praying that the church would pay their, not their employees, their clergy a living wage. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is, that's tough to hear. It's, you know, it's tough to hear. We got a lot of work to do in the church on yeah. equity. And, and the, the other critique that I heard were from a lot of the historian Twitter who a lot of them had issues with the 1619 Project, which I understand from their point of view, they felt like um, the journalistic effort was what it was. But from a historian standpoint, it didn't even scratch the surface. It didn't even go deep enough to piss people off in the way they were pissed off. So just imagine had, had have some of the history actually been mm. unveiled, mm -hmm. what the naysayers would be saying. I mean, by the time a lot of, and we talked about this, I think in a couple of episodes ago, by the time a lot of these projects like Judas and the Black Messiah or um, any of these like historical uh, films get to Hollywood or get to a, a big enough platform like New York Times where they can get some play, they've already been watered down significantly. So just imagine your visceral reaction to something that has been watered down. You, are, we, you aren't even scratching the surface of what really happened, right? Ooh, ooh, and so ooh. that part of Twitter was sort of talking about that as well. Oh yeah. It's interesting because like uh, the 1619 Project came out at about the time when I was finishing up my my project for my dissertation. I was really excited to read it and went through it. And I I wanted, I was hoping that there would be like an article or something that I could use because I wanted to connect 
what was in that too because it was a it was kind of a zeitgeist moment for america and and especially because it was the anniversary it was the you know, 400 year anniversary uh -huh. so it, thought it would be a perfect connection but as and as powerful as the articles were i loved all the articles i listened to the podcast read it all bought a bunch of commemorative copies of it there wasn't one that spoke directly to the question of whiteness in a powerful enough way that i felt like it was right for the curriculum so that being so that being said when folks are going through the whiteness process already they're discovering even more depth to the history than what's in the 1619 project right during in our church and so the idea that somehow not just the project herself but her hiring would cause this much controversy is an example of where we are in the moment it shows us where we are at this particular moment there is an attempt happening not unlike what took place in the 80s after the black power movement began to dissolve well dissolved because of attacks by the fbi and the federal government there was a move toward color blindness and that similar kind of a new form of colorblind racism is rearing its head in in a form what I, I consider like a new mccarthyism this idea we don't even we can't even talk about what happened really what really happened or analyze it critically without being anti-american yeah right and so now it's like when they used to you couldn't you couldn't critique war without being anti-american if you said anything about nixon you were anti-american if you said anything about vietnam you were anti-american now you can't say anything about race without being considered to be anti-american so it's it's just it's another form of censure right and here's the real fun irony coming from the volks that are raising all kinds of hoopla about cancel culture now get mm. out who got canceled Kaepernick got canceled. Yeah. Let's talk about cancel culture. Who cancels people? Right? And yeah. folks on the left, don't get don't get upset. Don't get confused about uh, me too and all that, right? That's accountability. We're talking about who cancels people, right? Kaepernick can't get a job. You're trying to cancel not only people, but it you can't try to cancel Nicole Hannah Jones tenure. You're trying to cancel all an entire field of scholarship mm -hmm. because we don't want to hear the truth. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, anyway, there's so much in the media that, you know, and the conversations about this stuff that is so trite and, and meaningless. But I, I do think this one, while I think it is completely, it's just a sign of buffoonery to try to resist critical race theory. On the other hand, I do see it as dangerous because it's easy for white people will do anything they can to not take accountability. Yeah. or to, to, to avoid responsibility and to live in denial and to pretend like race doesn't matter and to go back under that warm blanket. So I think this, this does pose a real challenge. To and, and the church, Big C, mm. makes that very easy for people. The church is the warm blanket for many people to crawl under and to get their racism absolved every Sunday for 30 minutes before they go back to being <laughs> racist again. Um, exactly. And, and so when you have a church that's actually trying to do the work of unpacking that, of dismantling those notions, you also are up against a, a sort of cancel culture, right? I know mm -hmm. the, the type of hate mail that you get here and, and, and even mm -hmm. people in, within the church context who are saying, um, this is, uh, if you talk one more time about this, I'm leaving or, yeah. or whatever the thing is, right? There's too a cancel political. culture. Yeah. Too political, right? Yeah. As if that cancel culture happens in church. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 
And I and it's not just so like it, I always feel like our theology should should make sure it's careful to be whatever is the opposite of what the Southern Baptist Convention is saying. So it's a good way to kind of get a litmus test of where your faith is for us. It's like if the Southern Conven Baptist Convention is against it, we're for it. If they're for it, we're against it. For the most part, it is usually pretty clear. They are not for transgender people. So we're for transgender people, right? Mm -hmm. They are anti-CRT, critical race theory. And so we're for CRT. We're for critical race theory because we're for the truth, right? So this is, you know, whenever you look at, you can just kind of judge. It's sort of like I used to say, whatever the KKK was against, you should be for, right? So the KKK was not just against uh, black people, murdering black people, right? And then against um, Latinos and immigrants, they were also against Catholics, right? So they had a religious problem and they were also, guess what? Against unions and against communism and against socialism and against any, any other economic model other than the one that was supporting white supremacy. So I, it's, it's a part of helping us understand that all these issues, if the KKK thought race and economics were linked, you should too. Mm. And, and faith. And faith, yeah, because they're they're basically a religious police force. Mm -hmm. That's what the KKK was. Yeah, a religious vigilante police organization. Yeah, That's crazy, right? I mean, but and economic, they were also an economic organization. Yeah, so I think that that's really important for us to be. I, I hear a lot of schools. I have people calling me now. The public schools and private schools are fighting this same battle that churches are struggling with as well. So, right, how how do we talk to our kids when we can't? How do we teach? race without being able to talk about critical race theory. And you've got parents coming to the schools and saying, you can't talk about that with my kid or I'm pulling my kid or I'm pulling my funding for your private school, you know? And so I'm, one of the things that I'll say about that, I, I, before we move on, Mia, is I think some folks are going to have to think creatively about pivoting away from CRT to a deeper critique. And by that, I mean, Critical race theory did not originate out of nowhere, and it was not invented by the liberal establishment because they were, you know, wanted to make sure everybody thought they were racist or hate America. That's not where it came from. A lot of people who are talking about it really don't have a clue what it is right now, mm -hmm. um, especially politicians who are telling people that they should be against it. They don't have a clue what it is. Um, but there is a deeper tradition that is actually far more important than critical race theory. And that is the black intellectual tradition from which critical race theory is born, which is a much later development. So my feeling is like, if you can't, if you hadn't figured out what Baldwin has told you, you don't need to be reading any critical race theory. Mm. You need to go back and read, go back and read Bell Hooks, go back and read Toni Morrison, go back and read Baldwin. You don't need to be reading any scholarly stuff. You don't need to read any academic, you know, work. Go back and read W.E.B. Du Bois. Yeah. In the 1920s. You hadn't figured out what he said. So how are you going to now jump over here and tell us we can't even we shouldn't even be reading anything from critical race theory? All critical race theory is, is trying to analyze what the black intellectual tradition has told us about America and about white people and about the history of America. And so basically, that's one of that's the thing that makes me the most mad about these attacks is really they're attacking the black intellectual tradition. But I also say, well, when they do that, then forget CRT for a while. Stop worrying about it if it's going to be politically divisive and just make people go back and read the black intellectuals. Mm -hmm. Go back to the 20s. Nobody understood what, what they said. That We haven't figured that out yet. 
Mm-mm. Right? No. <laughs> you, we, we haven't figured any of that mess out. So, no. Uh, anyway, that's my, I'm off my soapbox on that. <laughs> this week in the news has been a lot. It has. And, and there's still ongoing strife in, in you know, Israel and Palestine. And right. um, I've been talking to a few people uh, who, you know, I, interesting enough, I had a conversation with Rabbi Dusty uh, class today about, we were talking about the difference between the Christian interpretation of the Hebrew Bible and the Jewish interpretation and how we view a lot of those Isaiah passages and the prophetic passages as pointing to Jesus and how they view it as pointing to land, right? Like God has promised us Ooh. land. We are wait the Messiah in my terms, my, my words, this is my words. The Messiah is not a person, but God is pointing us to reconciling with this land that we've been exiled from. That's the messianic promise in many mm-hmm. ways. Right. And so, um, I was telling her about how dangerous that is for Christians because we took that land promise uh, littered throughout the Hebrew Bible and, and manifest destiny came over here and you know killed people over land. But she mm-hmm. was like, you know, um, some some Jewish people have done the same thing as it relates okay. to land, and we were reflecting on the the turmoil and the tension, and what does it mean to practice the Jewish faith and to also hold tension with we may not be reconciled with the land or reunited with that particular land the way we thought we were, right? Well, how is it, what is it like to hold those two things in tension? Like maybe we need to reimagine what these land promises are. Um, and so I thought that was interesting and just Absolutely. reflecting on it. And I know that it's just, um, it can easily fall out of the news cycle. I mean, they've already moved on in many ways to something else. So. Um, just reminding people of what's going on in that part of the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I think the connection um, between justice issues is so important, and the the religious foundations, as we've talked about so many times here, how a toxic religious theolo- theological vision can lead to historic violence, and has so many different times a misinterpretation or even just the, an interpretation that's right, that's misapplied, can lead to just generations and generations of violence by people in power. Yeah, yeah. So prayers that way. Um, today's topic, friends, is decolonizing liturgy and mm. other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I wanted to first open with a quote. I am uh, rolling out, by this time I will have rolled out the first session of the course called Decolonizing Liturgy here at Myers Park Baptist Church. Um, and one of these uh, readings that's on the list, suggested readings, is by a man named Richard Pitt. And it's called Fear of a Black Pulpit. Mm. Real Racial Transcendence Versus Cultural Assimilation in Multicultural Churches. And I found this article because I was looking up Gerard or Marty, who's a friend of the church. And so Marty is quoted throughout this article because he writes a lot about churches, particularly evangelical, but I think Marty writes about a lot of different um, racial groups, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We got to have him back. He's, uh, God. He writes on Latino churches. He's got a whole book on Latino congregations, his Latinx congregations in America. Uh, He's got a great book of worship across the racial divide, which to me Mm -hmm. was actually one of my, one of my teachers in helping move the church down a road 
on some major questions that we were struggling with. Like for instance, what does it mean to become a, um, a racially racial justice focused church, anti-racist congregation that really helped that book really helped me avoid some pitfalls. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's brilliant. And this, this person who's writing this article is referencing and quoting him a lot and, and sort of tagging off of him. One of the quotes at the end of the article uh, reads, multiracial churches, in spite of their composition, retain mostly white characteristics, even when whites are outnumbered by other racial groups. Mm. Why then are only non-whites and particularly blacks assumed to be consumed by the dominating influence of race? Why is the analytical lens almost exclusively focused on the power of race on non-whites religious behavior? Mm. Part of the argument that he's making in this piece is that um, the non-whites groups are always sort of making concessions and assimilating to the dominant culture, even when the dominant culture is no longer majority. And I experienced that in New York. Um, mm. I, what is, I was explaining to somebody, what is it like to go to a white church that is not pastored by a white person? And the 400 years of history of white domination in the Reformed Church of America is in the soil. Even if we began to outnumber the white group, right? There was still, it was still a white church. And so how do you begin to decolonize liturgy in these settings? And so I wanted to allow some time to reflect on some of the changes we've made in worship over the pandemic that we were forced to make in many ways, but also as we've transitioned back to in-person, how some of those changes have lingered. Um, what were the things we felt were important to bring back, like the Lord's Prayer? And, mm -hmm. and is, it, is this, and this is a question that some of the people that I interviewed, some of the black clergy that I interviewed who work in white dominant spaces, is the multiracial church project gonna sink or swim like we, we it's a, it's an ongoing question we have is this viable um mm -hmm. and that's what i heard from several people and there are people who are like yes we can make this happen the work is real it's happening and there are others that are like it's still up in the air for me i've been working in this church for seven years and i don't even know if the project is viable so anyway that's sort of the basis of of the course and i wanted to allow some space for for you or for both of us to talk about the the change in liturgy and your reflections on that first worship service where we came back and experienced it live with people in the seats. <laughs> well, I feel like to tell this story, I got to go back a little bit. Um, before I arrived, the church had been discerning um, a shift away from predominantly traditional white Western European classical tradition. Um, which had been its bread and butter and almost exclusively what its tradition had been. Uh, and also a very praised tradition, uh, one where they had excelled in, in their ability to, to practice that tradition um, over the years. And when I'm talking about choral music, I'm talking about hymnody, uh, even collecting their own hymnal. Um, I talk about, I'm talking about lots of music ministers with doctorate degrees who are at the top of their field. Um, musicianship at the, some of the highest levels of musicianship, working with symphonies, orchestras, um, you know, incredible oh, cutting albums. Our church had albums that they cut and sometimes went on choir tours and, um, you know, just a, an amazing 
practice of the tradition uh, of the of the music. And then, but got to a point where they realized they had to do something. Now, a lot of churches fo- faced that with the worship wars of the late '80s and early '90s of CCM music and the the battles, particularly white churches, the battles over guitars and screens in the sanctuary and having a contemporary service or whatever they want to call it. Um, and then having two services and splitting the congregation. Myers Park generally avoided that, which in some ways is really good because that was a terrible fight and really didn't go anywhere for the church, in my opinion. Certainly not theologically. It didn't help anybody. Um, and it certainly hadn't liberated any white people from their ridiculous theology. So anyway, that's a whole nother conversation. Um, but it did mean that we postponed a discussion that we should have had. And when, by, when I arrived, uh, a group of laity had gone through a process of, of studying whether or not to have alternative services, that was what they were calling them at the time. And they had brought in a couple of different groups to lead services, a contemplative service, um, which how that is distinguished from our service is something to think about. Um, and then uh, to look at, they had a group come in with like some of an acoustic guitar kind of thing going on. Um, and so they, and not a lot of people showed up for these alternative services that they, that, um, and so all the data and research went into a three ring binder that was on a shelf when I arrived. Um, and so there was, there was a knowledge that we had studied this, we had looked at it, but we weren't sure whether people really wanted it. Uh, although it was a major part of my conversation in coming, uh, and a major part of my discussion with the search committee. Um, and I felt like it was something we needed to talk about when I arrived. So it was something we began to work on, uh, and we brought in a couple of different folks to talk about liturgy. We had James K.A. Smith or Jamie Smith come and do an entire weekend event on liturgy, and out of that, we rewrote or wrote anew a theology of worship for the church with a team of lay leaders uh, that you can still find on our or on our website and as well in our order of worship from time to time. That gives a basic outline of why we do what we do and uh, where those things come from, uh, biblically speaking. And, um, and that gives a general guideline, but does not prescribe, for instance, what musical tradition should be in worship. So that's sort of where my work came in and working with um, Fran, particularly first off, when she was here, but then with Matt now recently in bringing in diverse forms of musical expression. We started, of course, our first experiment, gosh, it's now been almost four years that we've been doing this with jazz. And um, we had actually a jazz service in an, e- on, in an evening on a Friday. And I think it was attended by, I don't know, 40 people. Um, and um, that's where it all began. We started from there. And um, we moved, we, we tried a bluegrass service at first that just didn't seem to work theologically because the songs were all by and by, pie in the sky, heaven, eschatological distance theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, we, we also then, we tried a rock service, which when we, when we landed that with Randy Franklin and the Sardines, it just, everybody was, it was mind boggling how many people showed up for that and how popular that was. And we were not, but the, the key difference there is we did not sing CCM songs. We sang actual, what we would call secular rock songs. I don't know what secular means anymore, but rock songs that were popular rock songs. And, um, and so, um, 
now we've been on this journey now for four years and in the pandemic when the pandemic hit we were forced because the choir could not gather to think very creatively about music and we couldn't you know we were we were forced to have either one person singing a hymn and us following along which felt really hard uh, or just a few choir members with masks singing uh, music that is meant to be very expressive and and yet it was just so hard to do that well uh, or bringing in diverse groups to, to help us and so that's what we began to do we began to expand our diversity in worship um, we went from not just having uh, jazz and rock which we continue to do with Randy Franklin and the jazz ensemble with Don and Greg and OC and, and others and Sean Higgins um, but we've also then began to have indigenous music with um, Jim Brock and Little Eagle. And, and then we had a different kind of bluegrass with the Aldridge uh, uh, family come in and do Brooke, and, um, Brooke Aldridge and that crew. And so we begin to diversify and it's, cha it's changed the way we do worship. It's changed the way worship feels from time to time. It's not like we're departing from choral music completely or abandoning our roots in Western uh, European classical tradition. We continue to do that and try to do that at the highest quality that we have. That's what Matt's degrees are primarily in, but we're continuing to integrate into our worship other forms and styles. And then sometimes like we did on Pentecost and our first one back, do them together, collaborate with them together. There's an old bad word people said, they used to call that blended worship, which of course nobody liked because it made everybody upset, you know? Um, mm -hmm. But if you can do it well, it's really more like a hybrid service. So on Sunday, a lot of people, will, uh, I, you know, some people would say, oh, it was a service primarily of jazz with a few traditional um, choral pieces thrown in. Well, actually, that's not exactly true. We had um, a jazz ensemble, but they did a lot more than jazz. They did a, um, a, a, an, a spiritual, an African American spiritual. Every time I feel the spirit, they did a. They did some blues music. They did gospel, straight up black gospel tradition music. Uh, they did hymns. They did um, hymn arrangements. They did, um, you know, and then the choir did a Western classical piece from Lawrenson, uh, and then the collaboration that came through, and then they did a piece that was almost uh, Latin inspired at the end that sounded like almost Cuban influence for the end of the service. So that's a wide variety. Now it may seem like it was all jazz because it was the jazz ensemble, but it's actually probably the most diverse variety of music that we've had in worship in my time here. And, and also sung with such diverse voices. And as you could tell, for those who were there, more people really got into it. There was a lot of clapping, uh, maybe also because we couldn't sing, but there was a lot of clapping, <laughs> a lot of movement. Uh, it was a it was a different atmosphere in worship. People were so excited to be there. Uh, had a lot of positive feedback about the service. It was an intense and beautiful experience um, for our members. So, yeah, I mean, I, what do you want to dive into there, Mia? What comes up for you as you hear about all that? I think, I mean, hearing hearing the work that has been done um, around it is encouraging. And I also feel like people don't have the theological languages to discuss their feelings, whether uh, it's good or bad, right? So yeah. 
um, so many of us, and I speak for a variety of people from a variety of traditions, have had poor liturgical uh, education. Um, mm. It used to be a time where in certain churches, I grew up going to Catholic school for a little bit and, and I went to mass quite often. You know, my friends who went through catechism, they had a liturgical understanding of what mm. was happening, why they were doing what they were doing, when they were supposed to stand up and sit down and, and cross their hands on their forehead and their heart. It was something that you went through a program and I, I get the similar feeling from my colleagues and friends who have gone through bat and bar mitzvahs, um, yeah. that there is a liturgical education. Um, I do not get the sense of that from many traditions that are reformed and part of that, which in the course we, we, read, a, we read a piece about what is reformed liturgy and, and does it, is it still relevant? Part of that is because reformed liturgy like Baptist churches are, is autonomous. <laughs> Uh-huh. Oh yeah. You can do whatever you want to do and kill whatever you want to kill and give birth to whatever you want to give birth to. Um and and that makes it hard to teach that across traditions um because you go to one Baptist church and they're doing one thing and you go to the, you know, Presbyterian up the street and it's doing something else and they're still saying they're reformed liturgically and you're going to the UCC church down the street and they're doing something else but they're saying they're also reformed so so we have challenges and I want to provide an opportunity for people to study what they're experiencing on Sunday, but in a theological way, right? Mm -hmm. And not so much, you know, the theology of worship, but really looking at people's assessments of liturgy. It is what we were doing 50 years ago, even relevant to the current community. If the people are the liturgy, then the liturgy would have to change every year, every two years, whenever our turnover is, every four years, like college, the liturgy is always changing. So I'm saying that to say, I think that the, the work that we've done with the services is amazing and it's been a lot of clergy pushing. Um, and I would love for more people to understand on a deeper level the decisions we're having to make and as it relates to their participation in community, mm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. One of the things you, is there's so much packed in what you said and one of them is, what is liturgy? Uh, you, 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 you kind of referenced it by saying the work of the people. Uh, and if the people, if it is the work of the people, then it must be different because the people are different. The people have changed, the world has changed, the way people live has changed, the way they think has changed, the way they talk has changed. And so to be a fresh expression of worship in the 21st century, uh, we have to think about who are the people that are creating this work together now. And that's changed for us. Our church is more diverse racially than it once was. It's more diverse economically, it's more diverse um, in terms of uh, sexuality and gender. It's more diverse in, this is the big one for liturgy. It's more diverse in background theologically and denominationally. So when you think that someone might be able to come into our church and understand what's taking place, that is actually now no longer a safe assumption. So people are coming in with wild backgrounds. We're getting people who are showing up never having been churched at all wondering why are they doing certain things. we got other people showing up having been totally church for their whole lives in evangelical communities. 
also wondering why are we doing what we're doing. We got people coming from Catholic and Episcopalian backgrounds. We got people from Presbyterian, Methodist, Black Church traditions, UCC, uh, Mennonite, etc. All these different backgrounds. So and. It's hard to say on one hand that our theology as a congregation is wide open and each person is free to form their own theological expression. And yet we've chosen theologically a particular form of liturgy that when in reality, Baptist churches have not been traditionally reformed liturgical spaces, but free free spaces. Freedom of worship is one of the four fragile freedoms of what it means to be Baptist. And it means that our worship should, we are free to change our worship and make it whatever we want it to be. Mm. Which is how we got to mega churches in America. They were mostly Baptist evangelical spaces. Um, but it's also how we got all kinds of other expressions of faith, like the black church and, um, you know, different forms of music and wild creative expressions of uh, liturgy as well. So we have to, we are free. The thing that we have to keep saying is we are free. And in fact, our covenant, our covenant requires us uh, to continually examine, to sustain, it says, a critical examination of scripture, belief and ritual. And liturgy is a ritual. Mm -hmm. um, we often say, oh, yes, we love critical examination of scripture. We don't even ensure we need it. Who cares about scripture? We love critical examination of belief. We're not even sure we have to believe. And then we get to the ritual and we're like, no, no, no. I don't want any critical examination there. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we want to keep that. We're going to keep that as it is. No change. Right. Yeah. Don't critically examine this. Um, and, and, and that is one of the, in Myers Park Baptist is not unique in this. This is a, uh, I would say an issue with a white mainline esque churches, denominations yeah. um, who are progressive. So a lot of the work that I do is not dealing with the evangelical spaces. I'm dealing with the progressive spaces who have made these tremendous strides theologically over the course of their lifetimes. And yet liturgically is struggling. And one of the things, and I'm glad we don't have that issue here, but one of the things that a lot of clergy said was it wasn't the senior pastor, or maybe they were the senior pastor that was that was halting them. It wasn't even some of the members, it was their music director. Ooh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. When James K. Smith was here, he pulled me aside and he said, The only people that are like you in your are that I can find in ecclesial life that I know of are Catholics in Canada. And I was like, What? He said, yes, Catholics in Canada tend to be latitudinarians on doctrine and fundamentalists on liturgy. Hmm. And unfortunately, we have often become latitudinarians on doctrine, which means completely free, no doctrine. You don't have to believe anything except. And then when it comes to the liturgy, fundamentalists. Here's the here's why I believe that is. And we also have that same problem with how we think about the building and grounds. Um, fundamentalist, which, um, which is the part of the liturgical space, I right? Mean, it's space. It's so space. Yeah. It's all tied together, right? Sacred space, sacred acts together are are written up with one another, like a cathedral in Europe is tied to a particular liturgical expression, right? So they're all united, like you're saying. And um, <clears throat> one of the things that I I sometimes wonder about that is um, I I think that happens because when you decide theologically that 
the be belief in Christ's divinity or the Trinity and three persons or scripture's authority over life and faith uh, is no longer dogmatic, meaning people are free because Baptists have always said li li liberty of conscience. You can believe whatever you want. In fact, we're not even going to compel you to believe. So that's why our church is filled with a lot of wonderful atheists as well who are there for community and fellowship and not just there for religious education or worship necessarily. So we have to remember that, right? It's um, That's a big part of it. We don't demand that they be believers to be a part of our community because that's what it means to be Baptist, mm -hmm. right? Is to be, give that soul freedom. But what happens is our, as human beings, we have to have something that's holy. Yeah. So this is just basic anthropology. We will invest sacred significance somewhere. And when we migrate sacred significance away from Jesus and scripture and away from dogma and doctrine, the natural place for it to go is music, liturgy, and buildings. That's the place where it goes. And we become almost more fundamentalist about that than we would ever have been about doctrine. Yeah. Um, and, and, and because, it, you know, there's a, it's called the migration of the holy. The holy migrates from one place to another. And yeah. what we used to consider as holy, maybe like Jesus, uh, <laughs> we now consider the building holy, right? Uh, or worship holy or liturgy holy. Uh, it's really interesting how that ap operates as a, as a principle of anthropology. Yeah. And if you have the privilege enough to redirect that that those resources to read to redesignate the holy as the building right mm -hmm. so i'm thinking about there are certain traditions that are wealthy uh the mm -hmm. united methodists not all united Methodist churches but the the tradition the denomination presbyterians wealthier baptist churches uh there's a lot of wealthy kinds of churches right and you mm -hmm. have the privilege to have this building that is so sacred and holy um, that the chandeliers are always shining and there's no missing lights, <laughs> mm -hmm. that the lights come on. Because I've been to some churches where it was a gamble every Sunday. If the, if the <laughs> light bill was going to get paid. Yeah. Um, and, and that there's a privilege in those traditions to be able to redirect, whereas in many other traditions, particularly of, you know, I would say, a, a class level that does not have this kind of wealth or black and brown people, you can't worship the building. It's not, I mean, it, yes, you do, but it's sacred, but not in the same way. Yeah. It's interesting. You say that I come, um, one of the, I was on a call the other day with a, a, a laity and clergy on the same call. And I got put into a breakout group with some laity, uh, from another church in Kentucky. And we were talking about, we were asked to talk about what does our church talk, spend the most time talking about, or what does your church spend the most time trying to protect? And of course, I said, well, we talk a lot about buildings and grounds, facilities, maintaining them, preserving them. Um, and one per the guy said, he was an older man in this church. He said, oh, wow, that used to be what I'm the head of, stu of the stewardship committee, the treasurer. And that used to be all we talked about. And then a, a business offered us to offer to buy our property from us. Mm. And. And we didn't, we weren't sure we wanted to do it, but they made an offer that we could not refuse. And we did it. And now we never talk about the building. Never oh. talk about facility. It never comes up. It, it's not a distraction from the work of ministry. It's not a constant drain on our budget. They just, they have a building, they have a facility, they like it, they have their sanctuary, but they don't have to deal with this 
all this other stuff. And that's not doesn't seem that's not in the cards for every congregation, but it does help you evaluate where um, you know what is at stake in on your campus. What are people for, for, forced to spend time and energy and and mental brain space and money in in order to take care of that can sometimes be a distraction from the not only the worship of a church but the entire ministry and mission of an organization yeah whoo i have so much there that's another episode okay <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, oh my yeah. gosh i mean the privilege and this will be my last piece on this privilege part but the privilege to spend the amount of time that we have spent talking about things that don't affect people's material needs is yeah. it's a privilege and i want people to name that even as we're talking about liturgy the privilege to even argue about like is there going to be a confession or not or is there gonna i mean does this affect the material needs of the people and in reading some of the content that we're reading in the course you know claudio carvalis will say no i mean you know when when you are pastoring poor folk in south and central america who don't even have a building and who i mean their ritual is new every Sunday. And I really want people to imagine a liturgy that is new every Sunday. You don't know what you're gonna expect. That mm. is church, that's mm -hmm. community. Somebody mm. might get up and start running around the sanctuary. That's just, <laughs> I, I, I used to be members of churches like that, right? So that's just the way it is. And you just never know what you're gonna get. And that's sort of, if it's meeting that person's material, you know, need in that moment, that's what it is. And so how do we do community with mm. people who have mm. a different need than us? Well, I I think that is already, I, I'm thinking about the prophets when you say that, because, you know, it's pretty clear prophetically in the Bible that God does not appreciate worship that is done where there is no justice being done, where the people are not living life of justice in their community the God says, I abhor that worship. Let right, you know, let justice flow down like a, an everlasting stream. Right. So many of the major and most important quotes we often proof text from the prophets come at the end of them on a diatribe about how your sacrifices and your worship. I hate, I abhor your festivals. I abhor your liturgical traditions. I abhor your lectionary. Unless it's leading to justice, unless it's leading to mercy, unless it's leading to humbly walking with God. I know I'm not interested. I don't yeah. want it. Right? Unless it's leading to a fast that takes care of the poor and houses people and advocates for just policy. I don't want that worship. I'm not interested in that worship. So God is pretty clear through the prophets about that. However, the problem is when we have distanced liturgy from theology and been latitudinarian on our theology, the, the, the worship no longer has a theological basis for why we're doing what we're doing. It only has tradition on which to, to found itself, and that is shifting sand right yeah. there. There's nothing uh, about that that can be anchored into uh, an understanding of what it means to be a people. So I think it's interesting that you bring up this unpredictability of someone dancing through the sanctuary, which would make a lot of our members go absolutely crazy and have a panic attack. Uh, or annoy them greatly, right, and distract them in worship. I think we have come, that makes that makes me wonder, I'm not sure, I mean, I probably have my thoughts on this, but it makes me wonder if sometimes what we're using liturgy for is to contain the holy 
and to box in an mm. experience of the holy that we can manage and that we can control. So it's not the work of the people. It's the control of God. Mm. Right. Um, does that make sense? Yes. And who are the people? And so who, who people? gets to make the decision, right? Who gets to sit at the table and say, it's going to be this, it's going to be that. And, and oh, yeah. even, perhaps even clergy had to be rethinking this, right? Yeah, like, we, got, we got some members who would, they would prefer dancing in, yeah. in worship, but they're not going to be on the, they're not usually going to be chosen to be on the ministry of worship and music. Yeah. Right. And so that's, there, there's also a question of power. Yeah. Um, now, now Paul does say things about worship being orderly, um, but that's a totally different concept than worship being controlled, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, how does a Christian community worship in the spirit when the spirit is absolutely uncontrollable by mm. nature? So when we say worship in spirit and in truth, you know, sometimes all we got is truth, right? And we're, we're <laughs> not letting the spirit do much movement among us. Um, it doesn't mean that we have to abandon all of our traditions, right? And some of them may need to stay or be reimagined, but th there is this sense where there needs to be some spontaneity, some um, openness to the movement of the spirit among us. I thought it was interesting. One of the things about Sunday that was so interesting that was a an old debate that died on the floor that day was whether or not a person should clap in worship. I used to be early on in my tenure here, I was counseled to discourage clapping. Mm -hmm. Even after like a, a powerful piece of testimony by someone or a powerful piece of music, how do you control behavior like that? I don't know. I mean, that yeah. seems odd to me, but people really didn't appreciate it. They thought that clapping was inappropriate in a sacred space. Yeah. Um, now, I do think there are questions about that we should ask, but why do we clap for some things and not others? But on Sunday, uh, we were invited to clap and people began clapping, even a bunch of white people trying to get on two and four, Mia. They, <laughs> some folks got there. Some they, folks they got did. There. It didn't sound bad from the balcony. So too bad. They, were, they weren't all on one and three. They have some of them on two and four. <laughs> holding it down. You know, we're... Ben, we are open to all. So I am open to the one, the three, the five, and the seven, and the yeah. nine. <laughs> Sometimes as Dawn does, she could you just keep, that's, you got the one and three. One that's and fine. Three. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought, and then I thought it was really powerful because, you know, sometimes on a more um, reverential piece, a more contemplative piece, um, that's maybe less about praise and more about reflection, there was an amen as the response yeah and there was also some talking to me during a sermon which i love gets me going um over on my left side i think it was over on the over on the left left side of the sanctuary for me but yeah there was a lot of a lot of response and i first of all people who hadn't been in there 14 months they've been they haven't had a chance to express themselves in so long but secondarily, it was also the, a reflection of the change in the atmosphere. You said something there. I know we're coming toward the end, but you said they hadn't been there for 14 months. And I wondered, in my reflection, how many people had just fallen into 
just roots a mindless routine now there are some who would argue that ritual is supposed to be to a point where you can do it without thinking too hard and Right. Know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I, I wonder about that. I wonder about the exuberance. Um, and and do we have church too much? Mm. Do, it, mm. it, like, or, or do we have certain kinds of church too much? Like, I do think there's something about, you know, our Catholic uh, siblings who, you know, do communion every week or whenever the whenever the church is open, there, you know, that's communion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but is there a sermon every week? Is there music all the time mm -hmm. or a certain kind of music? I'm just wondering about now that we have returned to something, I'm wondering about that piece, about the exuberance that existed and the bottled up need to express oneself. Where... Where did that come from? And I hope it doesn't disappear. I don't want it to disappear. Mm -hmm. I, I noticed that it began right after Tara welcomed them. Yeah. That was amazing to me. There would ordinarily, there would never be clapping. Yeah. That early in a service, but people were ready. Yeah. To be in that space. They were so excited about being there. And God, there's so many, there were so many layers to that. Like, what is it about? I mean, I've been in churches where they're poor, uh, poor folks, and they are that excited every damn Sunday. Exactly, which is what I'm saying. <laughs> well, what is it about? It took a pandemic to help us to see why we need worship. You know, now that's not for everybody. Some people know. They know. They know. They're they're desperate. I know some people that tell me that they are struggling through the week until they can get to another Sunday. Yeah, they're trying to get to another Sunday. Yeah, that's their life, right? But then there's a lot of others who don't even think about it. So you know, they may come once a month. They don't really, they don't really need it. They come because they feel obligated or whatever they come, um, or just it's a habit for them. And we love all that. That's all fine. But wh why is it that the exuberance came, you know, at that moment? I, I do think there's something for us to reflect on about that. And how do we, how do we cultivate more opportunities like that, or how do we shape a theological belief system that helps people understand? how desperate we all really are. Yeah. So that's for true worship, regardless of our economic circumstances. Yeah. But if the worship isn't, isn't speaking to the privileged soul, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to be exuberant like that, right? It's gotta be, it's gotta be both speaking to the oppressed and it has to be speaking. It's a different word often, but it has to be speaking to both people and, and, and recognizing the desperation in both places. Mm. And, and to, to end on that, is that project viable? Mm. I, don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, I'm throwing it out there. You know, thinking about viability, is that even possible? I had a professor in seminary, Dr. Cruz, who was also a pastor. He was the only professor that I had who was actively pastoring at the time. And well, he would say no. He said, no, I mean, you know, his thing, he's a Lutheran pastor. He's like, nah, you know, I'm not wasting my time trying to build, you know, multicultural, you know, he's a Latinx guy, you know, and he's like, I'm not wasting my time. He's like, if, if people want to come to my church, yes, but he's, he felt like it was it, it, to, to be attending to the needs of the gentrifiers that were coming in his neighborhood um, and trying to create things. He felt like it was a waste of his time and that the oppressed should always take center stage. Yes, I well, I agree with part of him what he's saying, and I would say, 
I, I think I had his theology up until I had members of our own congregation and staff. I'm not blaming you here, Mia, but uh, and staff who said, uh, pastor, you got to figure out how to speak to everybody in your congregation. Yeah. So if the project is not viable, then I don't need to do that. Yeah. I don't know the answer. I wasn't saying it was. But, no, but I think that's an interesting <laughs> point, right? I, I, cause I think I've been persuaded and I don't think my, I think the problem is I don't believe in, I don't believe the project needs attention the way that others think it needs attention. Cause I'm, I'm not out here trying to build a multicultural church. I'm trying to just build a faithful church. I don't care. I just want people who are following justice, justice and Jesus and whatever, you know, and trying to build a better community and building relationships with each other and including and loving people. I don't care if our church is a hundred percent white or a hundred percent black or a hunt or totally mixed. I just want them. I want us to be faithful and just, and that's not really what happens is what God is doing to me. It's like, we don't choose who comes. That's a thing God is doing in the spirit now. But if I didn't believe something of what he said, uh, I'd be lying. So that's the part of it. What I, what he's saying that I do believe, but then the other side is I actually have to figure out how to do my job regardless. So yeah. I would say, yeah, he's got to figure out, yes, how to elevate the poor and the oppressed in every worship service and preach to the gentrifier. I mean, yeah. I don't think you can leave the gentrifier alone. You've got to talk to the white folks. You've got to talk to the folks of different economic backgrounds. So you got to figure out how to, what do they say that you have to code switch? Yeah. <laughs> That's an excellent podcast. You should go listen to. If you don't listen to Code Switch, go listen to that. Yes. <laughs> well, this has been a fruitful conversation. We can go yeah. on and on. We have to do we a could. part two at we some could point. Talk forever. Yeah. There's so much here. And if you are interested in the course, please do sign up. There's sessions all summer. And also, if you just want the syllabus, I will send you the syllabus. Um, I think that it's important for us to read other people's assessment of liturgy and worship and not always be sitting in our in our own context and communities. Um, and to also particularly hear with people of color, their mm -hmm. assessments of mm -hmm. the the project of, of being multicultural or multiracial or multi-ethnic, whatever, whatever the language is, merging and not even just re regarding race, I'm thinking about Pentecostalism and how that is black, white and Latin and our, everything, oh, right? Yeah. So, so what is it like to embrace the the Pentecostal uh, and who walks through the door in our in our context, right? So um, yeah, I encourage you to do that. I hope folks will sign up for for the course, man. I, I think there's a lot of fruit that's going to come from it for our church and um, for for the individuals who participate. If you've been through a what does it mean to be white group, this is a perfect summer follow up for you to go through this group and and to kind of figure out how these questions impact your worship that you've been struggling with related to whiteness and colonization and being either a colonizer or the, uh, the subject of colonization. Uh, and then I just want to say folks, you know, Mia got a grant for this from one of the greatest universities in America from Duke. And uh, I know <laughs> all the Chapel Hill people are like, damn it, Ben. Anyway. Uh, but yeah. Mia got a grant for this. Let's support this project that, um, that institutions are investing in our clergy and in our church with. So I hope folks will sign up. Yes. That's all for today, folks. Join us next week for more of Sacred Justice. Woo Take care. Peace. Friends, that was our episode this week. 
As always, please email your questions and your suggestions to Reverend Mia McLean at mmcclain at myersparkbaptist.org. Until next time, take care. This is Sacred Justice.